The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, that was a wonderful introduction to the subject, not about me, but about the subject. Randy gave us a very broad look at things, and uh, I sometimes do that, but today I... uh, I thought it would be useful, especially for those of you who have passed us, to burrow into that text to which Randy referred, namely Romans 1, to see exactly what a biblical text would have to say about this issue uh, of where our culture is now. Um, the, the takeaway that I want you to have is sort of discouraging, well, encouraging. Uh, You must preach the gospel. I know you're all convinced about that. But I don't see any way that you can avoid speaking about homosexuality if you do preach the gospel. Some of you probably have heard it said, well, you don't have to deal with those kinds of subjects. Let's just tell people that God loves them and eventually there will be hopefully a change in their lives. And, you know, there may be cases like that. I don't know. But if you follow the Apostle Paul's example, and I would suggest it's a great example for us today, because I've become more and more convinced, as I've read in the literature, that really our world is becoming an awful lot like the Roman Empire. And here is Paul going into this Roman Empire and telling the Christians how they need to conceive of their message, how to speak it in this pagan world. So that's the takeaway. Uh, The gospel is the power of God to salvation, but really there's no way that we can avoid the issue of homosexuality uh, as we do this. Uh, Because... I don't know whether you heard my title. It's rather cute. Uh, Pesky versus or the power of God, Romans 1. Pesky versus or the power. Bothersome is the word pesky. And there are a number of Christians who choose to put to one side that whole hot-button issue of sexuality and describe the Bible's They claim just six texts or probably many, many more uh, texts on the subject as either clobber texts or pesky verses that we can sort of uh, pass by because they're so anecdotal, so peripheral that they're not worth talking about really. They're non-essential to our message. But if you look at Romans with any kind of analysis that's worth its name, there's no way you can rip verses 26 through 28 out of Paul's theological development. You know, we're in the presence of a genius here. The Apostle Paul was indeed a theological, even an intellectual genius. And when he writes... 
he writes with such power, such coherence of understanding that for us to decide that a couple of things he says are pesky and we can get rid of them is really a failure to understand the nature of the text with which we're dealing. And of course, in Romans 1, this is the first chapter of a whole epistle on the gospel. And I know that none of you want to liberate yourselves from the gospel, but here's what then it means uh, to speak the gospel. And in Romans 1, Paul is giving us that classic overview of the gospel in terms of creation, fall, and redemption. You know, the many folks today who want to talk in a certain sentimental way about God's love and uh, really go very quickly to telling people that they're loved by the Lord. But here Paul is saying, listen, if you want to tell people about the good news of the gospel, it has to be done within the context of creation, fall, and redemption. Now, you all know this. I'm not really telling you anything, but I think it's very important to, um, to realize that we have here, in Paul's words, his version, if you like, his interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3, now applied very specifically to the pagan culture of his day. I don't know whether you've ever thought about Romans 1 that way, but I'm more and more convinced that that's what Paul is doing. He's taking the insights of Genesis 1 through 3 and applying them to the situation of the pagan world in which he found himself. And of course, within that, as he talks about the fall, as he talks about creation and the fall, he must deal with human sin. And if you don't place this issue in this larger context, you really will not do justice to what the gospel is all about. Indeed, you may well be guilty, along with people who join you, with blocking the gospel from being heard by millions and millions of people, which is a horrendous thing when you think about it. If you cannot tell people about the nature of the gospel as creation, fall, and redemption, they will never hear the true gospel. And so they will never respond to it in the way that we know needs to be a response in the repentance and the acceptance of our need for a savior. And so really this issue of sexual liberation is not about civil rights, but about eternal survival. That might sound rather heavy uh, to, to say, but I really do believe that if we fail to place this issue of sexual liberation, as Randy said, within this much larger context, 
we will fail to confront people with their own desperate situation in the need of understanding who they are and why they need a savior. So it is rather impertinent, it seems to me, to describe what Paul says in Romans 1 as pesky verses or clobber texts of homophobic Christians. It's naive in the extreme, especially when you take into account what Romans is. It's not just any text. To me, it's the crown jewel of the apostolic writings and has been that for many throughout the history of the church. And it's the text that turned the ancient world upside down. First of all, it turned upside down this brilliant rabbi, Saul, into a servant of Jesus Christ. It uh, clearly turned the reformational world upside down when a Roman Catholic Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, studying scripture in the tower in Wittenberg, read about the righteousness of God, that the just shall live by faith. You know where that is? That's in Romans 1, 17. This is the transformative text that changed the West. So we're dealing with a, an extremely powerful text. Luther said, understanding that, that God's righteousness, which was to him a condemning law by the work of Christ, becomes a gift. God's righteousness now becomes an imputed gift. And that changed everything about his understanding of himself. And he entered, say, he says, the gate of paradise. That's why I think Paul, in that 16th verse prior to that, says that this is, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. There is nothing more powerful than the gospel to change people. You can come up with many programs. Uh, you can find, especially today, the mystical message of the God within but that won't change your heart. You need to be face-to-face -face with the God behind this gospel to understand the transformative power of the gospel. A homosexual Christian journalist by the name of Jeff Chu went to visit all kinds of churches. He wanted to find a church that he would enjoy. And he says he discovered a renewed belief in God, my God, who isn't simply the God I believe in, but the God I want to believe in and need to believe in. But alas, this was not the God of the gospel. People want to find a God that they like. But the truth of the gospel is that God is not at our disposal. He's external to us. And so is the word he gives in the gospel. It's a word from outside that tells us how God himself has changed our objective situation. 
And that's the power of the gospel. So Romans is centered on the gospel as the only transformative power available in human history. And it is, as you know, the subject matter of Romans from start to finish, but especially in Romans 1. Paul begins off, remember, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Here Paul is claiming a specific task to be set apart as one to whom is revealed the essence of the gospel. He didn't figure this out in his own head. It was actually a divine revelation of Jesus Christ. The content of the gospel is that Jesus, through his atoning death and resurrection, has won the salvation of sinners and the transformation of the cosmos. There is no better news. And of course, that claim is the claim that the work of Jesus is unique. The gospel is a unique message in human history. But Paul is also saying in this verse that the act of Jesus to set him apart is equally a unique act of Jesus. It was not left to chance. Paul was sent by Jesus, set apart by God in a very special way. So the man who writes Romans, the man who writes the gospel, comes to us with amazing uh, sources of authority that we just cannot dismiss as, oh, that's a pesky verse or that's just Paul's idea. If you take this stuff at uh, its face value, you can understand why Paul would claim to be a prophet like the prophets of the Old Testament. Remember what uh, you read in Jeremiah, who was a recognized prophet. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. and Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. That's Jeremiah 1.5. Remember what Paul said? In Galatians 1.15, God set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace and sent him to the nations. There is a tremendous parallelism here between the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah and Paul's sense of his own mission. If indeed then Paul, as the author of this text, is coming to the world with the authority of Jeremiah, he's in a certain sense then coming with the authority of Moses since Jeremiah was a prophet in the uh, likeness of the prophets like Moses. But I would say this even more that Paul has the authority of Moses and perhaps even more than Moses because the apostles observed the final act of God in history, whereas Moses only saw from a distance the future glory. That is why I believe Paul says, I'm sorry for giving you this information, but I've got to say it somewhere. I wrote a 
doctoral dissertation on this subject, in other words, and no one listens to me or reads my thesis, so I'm going to give it to you. And, and you can't do anything except walk out, maybe. Um, I think that's behind what Paul says when he says, since we have such hope, we are very bold, not like Moses. My doctoral dissertation was trying to show that Paul believed the apostles to be second Moses prophecy. They, with Jesus, formed this final second Moses prophecy to the world. So when Paul says, not like Moses, he means that now those who were set apart by God have this vision, this understanding of God's work, not as a future vision, but having seen it, that which was from the beginning we've seen with our eyes, touched with our hands. You see, the apostles saw this in person. And uh, thus, says Paul, we use boldness. We don't have a veiled vision. We have clarity of speech and understanding. Thus, I'll close my parenthesis here, but just to give you that sense of the, the power of this text, that it comes from somebody who feels empowered by this authority of the second Moses to give to the world this amazing message. It is indeed, as Paul says, the foundation on which the church is built. 1 Corinthians 3.11. There's no other foundation. It's the foundation of Jesus Christ, of whom Paul is an apostle. So that's the authority behind this teaching of the gospel. And as you move into this uh, first chapter, the theme of the gospel is not dropped. Uh, after greeting everybody in Rome, he says, I am under obligation to Greeks and bar barbarians, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He says that in 115. The very goal of his life, he says, is to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. There's no other power on earth, as I said earlier, not politics, economics, social activism, utopian visions for the planet, human flourishing. Nothing can ultimately make things better except the gospel. And why? Because everything human beings do is vitiated by sin. And until you solve the problem of sin, everything you do will have that mark of sin upon it. So we must never drop the gospel. The power of God, as I said, is the righteousness of God, which is really a judgment upon our sinfulness, but that is imputed to us by the grace of God. That's the most liberating news you can ever hear. It is the undeserving gift of God's righteousness to sinners. But then Paul continues in this text. He does not leave the theme of the gospel. But in verse 18, you read with a certain amount of disappointment when Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all unrighteousness. Why does Paul need to be so negative? You know, should not he have learned from our tele-evangelists <laughs> of today? He's surely ruining any chance he can have in getting this message through by taking such a negative point of view. Because we're so used to this notion of unconditional acceptance that we often quietly overlook, even eliminate the notion of God's wrath against sin. And it's a very popular thing to do. I really don't follow this musical group. In fact, to tell you the truth, I don't follow any musical groups. But uh, there's a Christian group called Casting Crowns. In their song, Jesus, Friend of Sinners, they say, nobody knows what we're, what we're for, only what we're against when we judge the wounded. What if we put down our signs, crossed over the lines, and loved like you, Jesus, did the world? The world is on their way to you, but they're tripping over me. Now, that's a very subtle way of saying, you know, let's go easy on this notion of sin. We're stopping people coming to Jesus. I'm sure that self-centered, pompous judgmentalism is an obstacle to faith. But alas, the truth is much more complicated. The clarity of the human situation must mark gospel preaching. Now, we don't do it, obviously, as holier-than-thou people because we've been reached by the gospel that told us that we were sinners. And I don't understand anybody who could, with a sense of pride, talk about sinners in any other way than with humility, but they exist, alas. Because the human situation is indeed marked by sin. The world is not necessarily on their way to you. Now, Mysteriously, perhaps some people are, but the Apostle Paul tells us that the world is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. You know, you try to put those things together, and our modern, easygoing, non-judgmentalism really doesn't take into account this amazingly serious statement that actually the world is engaged, or as Randy said, is in love with the lie and is engaged in suppressing the truth. I read yesterday of an incredible example of this at Southern Florida University where Rosario Butterfield, who was a converted radical feminist lesbian English teacher, you can't imagine anyone more classic about our present culture, who was amazingly converted to Jesus and left all of that stuff got married to a pastor, and is a mother. <laughs> and she was invited to come and speak at the uh, Reformed University Fellowship in Southern Florida University. Well, just the idea of her coming and the little burb about what she would say blew up the campus. And the LGBT group uh, created a tremendous uproar. But this is one of the things they said. 
if you allow her to come, they were talking to the administration, if you allow her to come, you will be guilty of homosexual people committing suicide. We cannot allow them to hear this message. Otherwise, they will be, they will be so offended, they will, certain of them will doubtless commit suicide. That's the threat that you will see more and more. You cannot speak about sin because, you know, that, that's disturbing. Was there any question of that, by the way? Uh, speaking about sin does shake us up. And according to this view of the gospel, it really should. Otherwise, there's no reason for the gospel, right? There's no reason for a savior if we're not sinners. So Paul is here emphasizing the righteousness of God and God's wrath against sin for a really serious purpose. Because, you see, if you could put yourself in the situation in Rome, and if you hang around a few more years, you'll feel it yourself. Here, you know, he went to Rome that had no idea about really a moral universe, a God who is thoroughly holy and pure and creates a world which is holy and just and good. But it's a world that has a totally confused notion of good and evil in a very relative sense. The gods and goddesses, which are a projection of the human scene, are fighting with each other. And the goal is to join the opposites of good and evil in some kind of relative, uh, livable way. And uh, then we'll all be fine. But the idea that there is an ultimate judgment, that one day the books will be opened and that justice will be served, you see, that was totally unknown. And it's, I think that's part of the gospel, to know that there is a final accounting for injustice. And so we're in a world that doesn't want to hear that. Our culture, like that ancient Roman culture, is involved in moral relativism as the way forward. And here's a phrase I, I wrote that I like, so I'll take my time to say it. Our culture is celebrating the values of human choice and denying the laws of God. Celebrating the values of human choice but denying the laws of God. So that there's an appearance, you see, of morality, the respect for everybody and so on and so forth. But getting to the real essence of what is moral, what is just, is really absent from people's thoughts. So Paul introduces the God behind the gospel, you see, as the lawgiver. The God who creates, you see, creates according to principles. And those principles really are the law as to how God establishes the world in valid, just patterns. We call it holiness. God separates things out. Remember Genesis 1 where he separates out the different things, the day and the night, the dry land and the seas, male and female. This is the basis of law, as a matter of fact. God the creator is thus the source of law. And uh, Paul then is introducing a very different kind of God behind this good news of the gospel 
than those Roman and Greek pagans had any notion of. Are you finding more and more people of that kind of characteristic knowing nothing about the God of the Bible more and more in wonderful Christian Canada? Sorry. I I think, you know, everywhere I go, I'm seeing this. Um, Joe and I were in London a couple of weeks ago together. And, uh, boy, do you see it in London. And even in the places where you thought the law of God would be respected, like in Buckingham Palace. But the Queen signs off on gay marriage. You know, we are losing this notion of this God of creation and God of law. So this is part... This is part of the gospel for a fallen pagan world. Make no mistake about this. One day will come a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, that's part of the gospel. It's the good news that the righteousness of God, which does condemn us, actually is preparing a righteous cosmos and gives to us that gracious gift of imputed righteousness. So if, if we're to preach the gospel, you see, we, we have to take seriously Romans 1.18, the wrath of God. Do you hear much of that on television? You'd lose an audience, wouldn't you? <laughs> and think about the offerings, how they would plummet. I know some of you are concerned about that. (laughs) So Paul's version of the gospel must have this notion of God, who is the just creator. As I said, the notion of creation, fall, and redemption is essential to speaking the gospel. And it's only then you see that Christ's death is good news for sinners. Only then. If you want to bring good news to sinners, this is the way to do it. Now, they'll tell you that this is so disturbing they'll commit suicide and that you're a hateful person, but I don't know the way out of this, brothers and sisters. We're moving into a new day. What I read yesterday on that campus in Florida shook me that the opposition would actually accuse you of pushing people to suicide. That's a new one. But it, it just shows the weight that will be on our shoulders as we seek to speak the gospel in our time. So I do not take it lightly. At the same time, I'm trying to show to you <laughs> that if you do want to speak about the gospel, there's no way you can avoid the wrath of God. There's no way you can avoid the law of God. It's not that you're being moralistic or rationalistic. It's, it's that you're attempting to show people that this God of love is condescending love because of who he is. As the righteous creator. And so in this gospel that Paul develops here, there is a note of judgment. 
as Randy read to us, people know this God exists, but they suppress that truth. And then Paul says, so they are without excuse. I suggested to you that Paul, who is, forgive my saying this, a second Moses, uh, was actually, I believe, giving a new version of Genesis 1 through 3 to the pagan world. The world that Moses addressed was a pagan world too, but it was specifically, specifically addressed to the people of God when he wrote Genesis. But I'm sure what Moses wrote in Genesis hit that pagan world just the way Paul's gospel hit the Roman world, that Canaanite view of God as nature, you know. And here we have this God who creates, who is the Word. So Paul now is speaking to a new version, if you like, of the fallen world, the paganism of his day. But I do think you can see in this text a sort of implicit commentary on Genesis 1 through 3. And uh, for those of you who preach, you should remember these points because you could maybe preach this one day. Um, what do you see here? Well, Paul says, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Why the plural? It's possibly a reference to the original pair, the original temptation of the lie. But of course, it's extended on now to all human beings. But there's something in that they that suggests to me that Paul is at least aware of the Genesis account. Who were tempted, has God not said, eat and you shall be as God. That's the great lie. It's a lie today, right? We're hearing it all over the place. Look within. You'll find God within. The lie doesn't change, but that was the lie at the beginning. Secondly, Paul speaks about the lie. In some of your Bibles, it's a lie. That's the most rubbish translation I've ever seen. The Greek has the definite article, the lie. And... Uh, when Greek uses a definite article, it means it's definite. So when you read that text, Romans one twenty-five, remember that the definite article is in the Greek text, topsudo, and uh, topsude, and it must mean the lie. And of course, if that's the case, then Paul, I believe, is referring to that original lie, the lie. It's not just any old falsehood, right? It's the essential lie that we see stated in Genesis. And the Apostle John says this about Satan, who was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. But notice, from the beginning. So that this, the lie... I think throws us back again 
to Genesis 3. The third element is that the original exchange of the truth for the lie in Genesis is lived out in the person of the second Adam at the beginning of his ministry where he is tempted by Satan. The same, it's interesting, it's the same temptation. Did you notice that? The second Adam, Jesus, is being tempted, not in paradise now, but in the desert. But the same lie is being told to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Paul talks about worship and service in Romans 125, and this is precisely what Jesus says in Matthew 4.10. The final little bit that you might want to notice is that in chapter 1, verse 23, Paul talks about fallen human beings worshiping images of mortal men and then animals and creeping things and so on. He actually says birds and animals and creeping things. In Genesis 1.28, we find virtually the same kinds of expressions with a couple of Greek words that are exactly the same. Adam and Eve are supposed to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.28. So you have this exchange, you see, from having dominion over these animals, now to worshiping and serving them. And that happens at the beginning. So I believe we see here Paul's working out of Genesis 1 through 3, sometimes in very specific ways. And in this text, he develops what pagans do. He talks about three exchanges. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. They suppressed the knowledge of the Creator. But in Romans, you have indications of how brilliant Paul's thinking is, or at least its coherence. Because when you look at the way he develops from Romans 1.18 onwards, he moves in three different categories. He talks about theology, spirituality, and then behavior or sexuality as three interlocking elements that we all engage in as human beings. What people think about God, Romans 1, 18 through 22. What and how they worship, the spirituality, 1, 23 to 25, and then how they behave, in particular, in sexuality, verses 26 through 28. These are fundamental areas of human existence. And Paul says, in these areas, each one represents an exchange of the truth for the lie. How does that work out? Well, obviously, the truth that Paul says people really know is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
They know his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. This is exchanged for, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And he says they worship creation. Instead of the creator, the exchange of the creator is to place the creation in the place of the creator. That's the big transaction theologically, the exchange that's made. How about in spirituality? Well, as the exchange from what is demanded of human beings, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make yourself carved image, and I could cite the whole text, but you know what it says. This spirituality of images and so on and worship, they exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images and exchanged, sorry, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So there's an exchange here of the truth for the lie in terms of spirituality. And this is not primitive, by the way. We think those texts we read, or Randy read, about the foolish pagans. Pagans are still foolish today. They do the same thing. Thomas Berry, who was, isn't a, what he died a few years ago, was an apostate Roman Catholic theologian who then called himself a geologian because he began to worship the earth and had much influence in the United Nations with this book, uh, The Great Work. It's a work on ecology, but it's a theology of ecology. He's a geologian. And he talks about the importance of rediscovering the animistic peoples of the past and, and their wonderful ability to, to worship totemic images. Here's a Christian theologian now saying what we need to do is the worship of totemic images, totems. So, you see, this worship of images is not primitive, it's pagan. And it will happen every time you, you put the creation in the place of God. Then you have to worship created things, and sooner or later you'll have those images to remind you to do it. So that's the exchange in spirituality. But then, of course, and here's what I want you to see, is the coherence of the development of Paul's argument. If you exchange the truth about God, if you exchange the truth about human beings and spirituality, then you also go on to exchange how we look at sexuality. Verses 26 to 28 are absolutely essential in the coherence of this developed argument. They're not pesky verses. They're not clobber texts. They are a perfect, logical, coherent development of a whole analysis of pagan thinking. Joe, I have no idea how much time I have. Okay. Um, and so, well, let me put it this way. When we talk about homosexuality, the worst thing to do is engage in moralism. You know, do this, don't do that. God hates fags, that kind of stuff. Even the Bible says, 
I think today people don't want to hear that. But if you can talk about cosmology, how is the world constituted? Then I think you can hope for a, a better kind of exchange. And in my writing, and maybe I'll show the book to you today, um, it's entitled One or Two, Seeing a World of Difference, I argue that there are only two religions. So there are two cosmologies, really. There's the cosmology of God as the creator of all things, and then there's the cosmology of the worship of creation. That's what Paul says. I'm inventing nothing. I'm saying, telling you that Paul says there are only two cosmologies. You get that? The Bible is very simple. And I simply invented the words oneism and twoism because I'm dumb and I don't understand really fancy words, so I tried to make simple ones. So I'll show you that book, and if you would like to get a hold of it, you can go on my website and perhaps get a copy of it. But I think that this is revolutionary for us who've been raised to think that there are 365 different ways to God, of which Christianity is one. So shouldn't you be very, very respectful of all the 364 other ways to God? Well, you should be respectful. I agree with that. But as a matter of fact, the other 364 are all the same. At their essence, they are the same. They all worship creation. I saw that when I attended the Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago in 1993. Joe wasn't born then. Uh, and there were 125 different religions, 8,000 delegates. And you know the only group that wasn't invited? Orthodox Biblical Christianity. They linked their arms and danced around this ballroom celebrating their unity. I saw it with my own eyes. But the one worldview, the one cosmology that they could not integrate into the system was biblical cosmology based upon the creator separate from the creation. This has to be the way we address our world today. And in particular, as I'm saying, on this issue of sexuality. And the reason why you can do this is because of three words in English, two words in Greek, diatuto, or for this reason. It's the first line of verse 26. And it's amazing because you cannot get now away from giving some kind of cosmological or theological explanation, if you want to be a biblical follower, of sexuality. Paul says, for this reason, and when he says that, he's referring to what he just said. For this reason, people engage in homosexuality. Well, what is the reason? Well, the reason is that they've exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. In other words, as Randy was suggesting to us worship of the creation is idolatry and the sexuality that represents that worship is also idolatrous. You follow what I'm saying? Because it's the worship and service of creation 
it's set up for that reason. Now, you, you can think of many Christian gays, I know. But I guess I'd better get into this. Um, homosexuality means same. So it's a celebration of sameness in the area of sexuality. And believe me, there's a whole spirituality behind that notion. I have, I'm only not even halfway through my lecture, which is a shame, but um, I have a whole section in this lecture I won't get to, uh, sort of giving an account of a Bible scholar. He's a Jewish fellow, J. Michelson, uh, trying to argue for the goodness of homosexuality from a spiritual point of view. And uh, the spirituality that is involved in homosexuality traditionally has indeed been an extrapolation of the nature of homosexuality as the celebration of sameness into a spirituality of sameness. Sameness of what? Well, it's the sameness of God and the creation. You see that? Whereas Paul says God and the creation are distinct and different, this spirituality says, no, God and the creation are one. You are one. You are divine. And you see, that's how the homosexual expression becomes an embodiment of that pagan view of existence. It is the celebration of the oneness of all things. And in my notes that I'll never get to, um, it's actually said by intelligent homosexual theorists that this is precisely what homosexuality means spiritually. There's a woman by the name of June Singer, I remember this statement, who was a friend of Carl Jung and uh, obviously a Jewish woman who moved away from the Torah <laughs> and became an expert in Gnosticism. But she wrote a book uh, in 1977, Androgyny Towards a New Sexuality. And in the book she says, actually, you should know this, that the age of Aquarius, remember that wonderful song? This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Never knew what it meant, but I loved it. Uh, anyway, she said the age of Aquarius is the age of androgyny, the joining of male and female into one. That's what her mentor, Carl Jung, said, that we're made up of the anima and the animus, and we have to join these together. And here's what she said, that androgyny, the joining of male and female together, by the way, that's exactly what homosexuals do. When they couple they get to be both males and females. Remember that. Because everything's the same, but they have to play the two roles. So it's a form of androgyny. She says, androgyny is the sacrament of monism or oneism. The sacrament. This is not, I wish I'd have come up with that. But I'm glad that those who are pushing this movement say it. Because they're saying basically that the Apostle Paul is right. 
Paul is drawing out the spiritual side of this practice of sexuality, just the way these ancient people. Actually, my lecture on Saturday will get into this a little more. So, if you're there on Saturday, you'll get more detail of that. But um, I want you to see then how Paul has joined uh, the rejection of God and the rejection of normative spirituality with the rejection of what he calls the natural for the unnatural. He can't be more clear, can he? This is not a pesky text. This is the, the, the history of the way human beings have developed, and it's, it's, it's logical. It all makes sense. Now, I really believe that we cannot be superior and talk to gays and lesbians as, as if we're special or something or pure. But I think they need to hear this cosmology. I was um, giving a lecture like this many years ago. I haven't learned much since then, I guess. But um, <laughs> it was in Bloomington, Indiana, and lots of university students. And uh, I, I was trying to make this point about cosmology and, and how homosexuality is um, an expression, an embodied expression of a pagan worldview. And at the end, I'm standing on the edge of the uh, pulpit there, and this man comes towards me. I tell you, I was scared. He was six feet ten inches tall. And I, my neck still remembers that creak as I tried to look him in the face. But he wouldn't talk to me. He thrust a piece of paper in my hand. On which was scribbled in, in very angry writing. I'm mad. I'm damn mad. I'm mad that my homosexuality is driving me into paganism. And he, he gave me this piece of paper and turned on his great big heels and walked out of the room. Well, it must have been eight years later. I was speaking to a group of students in Nashville at Vanderbilt University, and they were asking about how do you deal with homosexuals. And I've not had great experience in this. I'm not called to that specific outreach. So I just gave them this little experience and told them. And uh, when it was over, one of the students came to me and said, I know that man. He's a friend of mine. I thought, oh, great, I finally know. He, he said, I want to tell you about him. He said he had the finest bass, you can imagine, the finest bass voice in American opera. He was on the way up to stardom. And after that lecture, he gave up his career in opera and took a job overseeing an old people's home. And I said to him, doesn't he sing anymore? And this kid said, you should hear him sing in church. I want to stand next to him one day in heaven and hear him sing. But I think 
in this day and age, we cannot take on a moralistic approach. We have to take on the approach, I believe that Paul is taking on here, of placing this whole aberration, this unnatural, unnatural expression in the context of the rejection of the natural view of God and of spirituality and thus of sexuality. And now I have no clue where I am in my lecture. <laughs> but uh, I think I'll just ad-lib from now on until Joe tells me to stop. But um, I will try and find what this uh, sexuality is. Oh, yeah, I found it. I said that leaders today of the homosexual movement, some of them at least are really seeing the spirituality behind this uh, sexual deviancy as actually a, a wonderful future for us as a, a, as a culture. They're bringing in a new kind of spirituality. And in my lecture on Saturday, I will show that actually this has been shown throughout history that that's the kind of spirituality that homosexuality evoked right to the second millennium B.C. There's nothing new about it, but this guy Toby Johnson says, gay attraction to and development of emotional relationships with members of the same sex results in seeing the world with the harmonious, non-dualistic vision that is the traditional goal of mystic religion. Now, some key code words there. Harmonious means there's nothing wrong with the world, right? There's no sin. Non-dualistic means there are no distinctions. There's no distinctions between God and the world, for instance, and no other distinctions, as a matter of fact. They must all be erased in this oneist perspective, which is the traditional goal of mystical, that is, pagan religion which I told you the great goal is the joining of the opposites, both good and evil, truth and falsehood, male and female. Because, you see, those distinctions were put in place by God who made this world and put the distinctions in to remind us of who he is as distinct from us. In other words, they are carriers of a cosmological message about the nature of the world. And this whole modern attempt to erase distinctions, you see, is an attempt to erase from people's memory or consciousness the very notion of God distinct from the creation. That's what's happening before our eyes right now. I have a lecture on that called Busting the Binary. (laughs) And it's so easy to demonstrate that this is happening all over the place. I go on. Gay consciousness is, love this, pre-Edenic, fundamentally innocent, free of original sin. That original sin that generates the dualistic belief in good and evil. And that the real message about religion is not about God, from this new perspective, but about how human beings should live harmoniously and non-judgmentally in order to participate in and further the evolution of earth into a collective self-awareness and a transcendent consciousness. 
That's this new spirituality, you see. It's the essence of paganism down the centuries. I have three more points? Three minutes, all right. (laughs) I thought you were asking for three more points. Anyway, that gives you a little sense, at least, of, of where this movement is going, you see. It's much more than civil rights. It's a whole new vision, which isn't new, of spirituality, which wants precisely to silence the gospel of the fall, of sin. And, and to me, that's representing this clash that's coming our way, coming your way, as you have to decide how you speak about the gospel in today's world. It really is, as Paul said, the juxtaposition of the truth and the lie. They are coming into radical confrontation in our time. And guess what? The lie doesn't have to be fair. The lie does not have to treat you with respect. It's the lie. You do. You cannot tell lies. You cannot treat people without respect. They're made in God's image, even the liars who are beating you up. But here's the confrontation as it works out now in Technicolor in our day. But you see, on us, on you, is this incredible responsibility of preaching the whole gospel. And without it, you will not see people come to a deep saving knowledge of Jesus. But sometimes people do. We cannot be silent. Paul wasn't silent, by the way. When he went to Rome, Nero was marrying two men. One is his husband and one is his wife. I mean, this is the Pontifex Maximus, the high priest, engaged in the most unnatural kinds of sexuality. And Paul doesn't say, well, folks, don't mention that. (laughs) In fact, Nero had him executed. It's costly. But, you know, without what Paul did, you wouldn't be here today. Without his clarity and without his sacrifice, we would not be in this room today. And I hope we can think about that when we're faced with a similar kind of issue. Romans ends in this incredible way. You know, it says, God gave them over. Three times, verses 24, 26, and 28, God gave them over. But there's another use of that very term, paradoken. It's the same Greek verb, the same tense Paradokian, to give over. In 8.32, Paul sort of is ending, in some ways, the gospel account. He, did, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him over for us all. How would he not also with him graciously give us all things? The God who gives over sinners to their sins gives over his son to carry those sins. That's the amazing 
message of the gospel. And I'm finishing with this. Randy, I see you're impatient up there. Without this clear presentation of sin, people will be unable to know redemption and the liberation from guilt. Because believe me, you can suppress the notion of sin, but you won't get rid of guilt. It's like physical pain. It's going to be there when you do wrong things, when you do hurtful things. It will be there. But here's the testimony of a former lesbian. In October 2008, I was convicted of my sin in a way that made me consider everything I loved and its consequences. My eyes were opened and I began to believe everything God says in his word. I began to believe that what he says about sin, death, and hell were completely true. And amazingly, at the same time that the penalty of my sin became true to me, so did the preciousness of the cross, the preciousness of the cross. A vision of God's Son crucified, bearing the wrath I deserved, and an empty tomb displaying his power over death. All things I had heard before without any interest had become the most glorious revelation of love imaginable. May it be true for us to see conversions like that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.